You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. The true, the good, the beautiful, such are the calls to arms for romantics and idealists, the philosophers as well as the poets. All sorts of people praise the beautiful, but the disciplined philosophical exploration of the beautiful in the natural world as well as in human works, has always been a battlefield of sorts. And Dr. John Dodosky's recent book, The Eclipse and Recovery of Beauty, joins that fray as it parts from the work of notable 20th century aesthetic theorist Hans Urs von Balthasar in its appropriation rather than rejection of philosophy's enlightenment turn to the subject. The resulting exploration is intellectually rigorous, raising questions about how the ethical and the aesthetic relate to one another, as well as how Christian philosophy particularly might proceed on questions of beauty and ecology. As we begin discussing as much of this as we can, Christian Humanist Profiles welcomes John Dodosky to the program. Thanks for coming on the show, John. It's good to be here. Thanks for your interest. Well, John, the conventional wisdom about beauty in the two four, you know, the year 2014 is a sort of relativism summed up in the saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, Now, you argue that this attitude towards things only rose to common opinion recently and that the rise has something to do with David Hume. So tell our listeners about how his aesthetics sort of set the stage for the modern neglect of beauty as a philosophical category. Sure. Um, In the book, I actually, I trace it to Kant in terms of setting the stage for a problematic around aesthetic judgments. Uh, I I quote Hume uh, very early on because he really represents this whole notion of beauty just being in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, Balthazar will trace it further, when we can talk about that, he traces it further back to, to... the, the loss or the subjectification of beauty as begins in the Middle Ages. But mm-hmm. I think what I'm trying to do in the book is engaged in, in a subtle and intellectual way this, this notion that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, that it, it actually is not. It's, it is to a certain extent, of course, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but it's, it's basically a, fun, a basic property of being in, in the philosophical transcendental sense of the good, the true, the one. And mm-hmm. although this is disputed, uh, I, I'm, I'm taking the bull by the horns. So maybe <laughs> it's, not so, it's not so subtle, actually. All right, uh, but all I, right. I think it will, be an up, it will be an uphill sell because, you know, most people would like to have a, a lot of room in, when it comes to the aesthetic to, to have um, various judgments about it, personal judgments, personal opinions, etc. Oh, sure. And, I, and as I read your book, I mean, I don't think that you eliminated those sorts of possibilities. You just wanted to situate them in a dialectic between the object and the subject rather than limiting it merely to the subject as Hume seems to do. I mean, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. Um, he basically says that, you know, if it's, if it's beauty, it's, it's in the mind of, of the person making the judgment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
and it's it's not some kind of objective. Whereas I'm I'm trying to uh, drawing on uh, the little-known philosopher, Canadian philosopher Bernard Lonergan, to mm -hmm. slowly construct a way of of making aesthetic judgments and also making judgments that that contain beauty. Now, I should also say, uh, just for your listeners, because this this is uh, uh, it's very easily easy to get confused. Uh, mm -hmm. When I'm talking about beauty as a philosophical notion, that's different from talking about it in, as an aesthetic notion. Mm -hmm. Because as we know, in, in modern art and contemporary art, you can have legitimate art that's not beautiful in, in, in the aesthetic sense. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it could be beautiful in, uh, well, if it, if it, if it gives us a, a profound truth to reflect on, then I think it's 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 beauty in that sense. It's beauty proportionate to the true, but not necessarily aesthetically. Mm -hmm. So philosophically, when we're talking about is if something exists, uh, is it true that it exists? Is it good that it exists? Is there a unity to that existence? Mm -hmm. And then further to say, is there is there a beauty to that existence? Right, and that's that's the kind of thing I'm trying to recover the philosophical notion of beauty. Sure, sure, uh, and I mean one of the things, and I think you treat this well, is you are sure to say in your book that to say beauty is subjective is not to say it's unimportant. And I mean you trace this through Kant and Schopenhauer. Um, right. Tell tell our readers a little bit, especially about Schopenhauer's notion, because he definitely seems to think that beauty is a subjective internal thing. But he gives it, I mean, a pretty significant ethical weight in that it's a sort of escape from the contest of wills that constitutes existence. Uh, and, you know, you sort of trace that to other theories that talk about the aesthetic as a, a release, if you will, from the grip of instrumental reasoning, right? Right. And, uh, that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. There is, uh, what I'm doing is, is a, is a Lonergan reading of those. Now, I, I know that uh, a lot of your listeners are probably not that familiar with Lonergan's philosophy, but mm -hmm. there is this notion that uh, his whole thing is there's different differentiations of consciousness, different patterns of consciousness. Mm -hmm. If I'm dealing with people, I'm in the dramatic pattern. If I'm, if I'm dealing with... Um, uh, getting things done, I'm in a practical pattern, mm -hmm. and uh, there are aesthetic. There's an aesthetic pattern. There's an intellectual pattern. If you think about the effort it takes when you when we were when we were in school trying to learn mathematics, you know, you have to be in this intellectual pattern. Mm -hmm. you, you you can't be trying to do something else. You know, balance your checkbook or whatever while you're trying to to listen to an academic lecture. Sure. So, um, in what I saw in Schopenhauer that I thought Lonergan would appropriate is this possibility of an aesthetic experience where you're moving into uh, not that there's anything wrong with reason, but it, it but there's an instrumentality that you're Consciousness has to be in in the everyday pattern of experience, mm -hmm. in the intellectual pattern of experience. 
that when you move into the aesthetic, it's liberating. Right. And, and uh, so it, it, I always like to use the example of sitting in traffic. And nobody likes to sit in traffic. You're in a practical <laughs> pattern of experience. You're trying to get somewhere. And then all of a sudden, there's a sunset. Mm-hmm. And if you advert to the sunset, there is this uh, liberation to that in the sense that uh, uh, you may get a sense that there's something more going on than just sitting in traffic. You, you mm-hmm. get this moment of liberation. So that's part of the aesthetic experience I'm arguing in terms of Lonergan's uh, appropriation of it. Mm-hmm. Now, to follow up on Lonergan's uh, contribution, and of course I should mention that the subtitle of the book is precisely a Lonergan approach. Uh, so, I mean, he's definitely someone who you are bringing into this conversation about aesthetics, even though, as you say, he's mainly a philosopher of consciousness rather than as, of a, of aesthetics. Um, exactly. To what extent, exactly. I mean, would would you say Lonergan is doing something analogous to or different from uh, Wittgenstein's notion of forms of life as setting the stage for forms of language? Well, I guess I should back up for a moment and just talk about the context of the study. Certainly. Uh, the, I became interested in what Balthazar talked about, the loss of beauty in the West. Mm-hmm. And, and I became convinced that he was correct about that diagnosis. He basically says, if you lose one of the transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, the one, if you lose one, you lose them all. Mm-hmm. And, and the epitome of that, uh, the epitome of the example, is you get a split personality in the subject. So you get these and, uh, Nazi officers with these refined aesthetic sensibilities that are also committing depraved acts. There's a split between the good and the beautiful there, and that's symptomatic of the issue. Now, for for Balthazar, he thinks that Thomas Aquinas has got this pleasing synthesis of the transcendentals, but after that, we lose it. Mm-hmm. And and he was very nervous about the whole turn to modern philosophy, Kant, Hume, Hegel, mm-hmm. because it it led to a relativism and a subjectivism, and he didn't want to make that turn. Lonergan was a Thomist, first and foremost, but he he wanted to bring Thomas up to date, so to speak, by engaging modern philosophy. So he took Kant, uh, took on Kant and his text, uh, uh, his philosophical text, Insight. And in there, I I think provides a way of of resolving the issue of the wrong turn and the turn to the subject, where okay. you can have the possibility of a, uh, uh, of objectivity by turning to the subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a lengthy argument. So it was because of his what he did with Thomism mm-hmm. uh, that that Balthazar couldn't do. So I wasn't convinced that Balthazar could provide. The, the philosophical solution. So that's what I'm trying to do. Read Lonergan, develop it in terms of a philosophy of beauty. But, you know, I'm also going uphill there, too, because Lonergan had very little to say about aesthetics, mm-hmm. uh, beauty. He did most of his 
his work on on trying to restore the possibility of truth. Well, you I mean, can know. Yeah, I mean, for my money, that's the best kind of intellectual work is bringing thinkers to bear on questions that they might not have considered themselves. So I sure. don't apologize for that. Uh, let me ask you this. The image that recurs in your book of the closing scissors, where one blade is the you know, careful scrutiny of subjectivity and the other blade is objectivity, and you talk about how both of those blades need to be coming together in order to make a clean cut, if you will, of aesthetic judgment. Is that something that you found in Lonergan, or is this a rhetorical device that you invented on your own to bring Lonergan to bear on aesthetics? That That is a phrase that Lonergan uses, uh, a pair of scissors as an image for his hermeneutics. Okay, very good. Where, where, where the upper blade is for him the four levels of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So experiencing, understanding, judging, and deciding. Mm-hmm. This, again, is what he, he makes this argument in 800 pages. I, I certainly can't go through it here. <laughs> but uh, he, and then that becomes the upper blade. So, so what, the way I did it in the book is I said, okay, let's organize the material around beauty by saying, okay, what's an experience of beauty? Mm-hmm. What is what is what is aesthetic experience? Uh, what is the nature of beauty? The Thomist would have said nature of beauty. Today we might talk about you know what is beauty, what okay. constitutes it, what's the form of beauty, etc. Um, and and the intelligibility of beauty. Mm-hmm. And then there is um, and uh, the third level being judgment. I, I said, okay, well, we'll engage the, the question of aesthetic judgments. Mm-hmm. And then the, the fourth level being decision, which is, which is uh, creating or constituting. What, that, that brings in the issue of a philosophy of art. Mm-hmm. So I brought that in. And so that functions as, as the upper blade, as a way of organizing and interpreting the various structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 you know, I, I've not always been real satisfied with that image of the upper blade. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just I because, like it, but, <laughs> but but there's a precision to it that he's trying to get at, and mm-hmm. uh, and I used it actually in my in, in my first book on Lonergan and Iliadi, the structure of religious knowing. I used those. I organized the topics in the same way experiencing, understanding, judging, and deciding. Mm-hmm. But he also later added the notion of loving, which was not a level in the same way. And so towards the end of the book, I had, I had to engage the question, well, most people think beauty is in the eye of the beholder because of their experience of falling in love. Mm-hmm. Right? You fall in love with someone, you're not necessarily sure why, uh, and then that person becomes the apple of your eye, so to speak, where, whereas uh, to someone else, that person may not be attractive at all. So uh, I, I, had, I, I started speculating about the issue of love and falling in love in terms of beauty towards the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, that will ultimately remain a mystery as to why two people fall in love. But there's a way of of trying to explain it philosophically. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets kind of technical, but um, 
I was like, uh, you know, when when I quote Aquinas early on, or, or the Thomas scholar Maurer, everybody loves the beautiful, mm-hmm. and and so it presumes that human beings know beauty when they see it, but they may not be able to articulate why philosophically. Right, and, right. Uh, I mean, in your I book, I mean, that makes really good sense that, I mean, that's where Lonergan becomes precisely a good conversation partner because he distinguishes among those ways of being conscious. Uh, and, I, and I forget the, the, the category label that he uses, but, you know, the four, I, I would think of them as modes of consciousness, but there's probably a more technical term that's better fitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I, I, I I mean, I, I teach a, a course on Lonergan's Inside up here at uh, Regis College in Toronto, and it's it's not, it's not easy going, but it's <laughs> it's you know it's refreshing because you get to know something mm-hmm. with Lonergan. You 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 can say I know without, uh, and it's it's not the same kind of that you would get in an ideological or, say, an extremist fundamentalist sense of I know. When, mm-hmm. when those kinds of worldviews are really grounded on, well, I'm not sure I know, but I'm going to act as if I do know. Right, and I'm going to yeah. enforce my claim to know with some other kind of force. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the opposite of relativism and subjectivism. Mm-hmm. Or the skepticism where... God forbid you know anything today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, if you got if somebody got to work, then they 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 know something. They they know how to get to work. Mm-hmm. So he so Ronigan will start out saying, "Well, it's the question isn't whether there's truth, but how do we know it?" Mm-hmm. And I tried to do a similar thing with beauty. Okay, let's presume that there is beauty. How do we understand it? Mm-hmm. And uh, in terms of experiencing, understanding, judging, and you know, it's it's a deep question, and and I I had a lot of confusion myself going through it, and 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 I'm open to the fact that I may need to return to this and revise it as I start getting feedback from people. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the places that you highlighted in uh, Thomas's work and. Honestly, I'm sure I've read this sentence before, but uh, you know, until you sort of unfolded it, I hadn't really spent enough time, I realize now, thinking about it, is that the nature of the beautiful is precisely to be desired. So it's not something that can be self-contained like unity or something like that, but it is inherently relational. Um, let me ask you this. I mean, you know, a, a lot of sort of self-proclaimed relational theologians, relational philosophers in the modern era, postmodern era, try to set themselves up against Thomas because Thomas is the philosopher of stasis, whereas they prefer something, you know, more dynamic, relational. Is Thomas's notion of beauty sort of a bridge to bring those two camps of thought together, do you think? Well, I I should say that there's not a consensus in first of all in Aquinas that he accepted beauty as a transcendental. Ah, okay. I, I think he probably did, and and Balthazar certainly believed he did, and Kovac, who was a scholar that Balthazar namely uh, draws on, did. But there are other scholars that don't believe that beauty is a transcendental, and it's 
it's it's not a transcendental uh, in the sense of uh, uh, in the same way. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I had somebody ask me one time at a conference, you know, uh, they said, "Well, beauty's not a transcendental," and 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 I said, "Well, if you if you tell your wife that she's beautiful, is is that a true statement, or are you just trying to flatter her? I mean, it's either true or it's not." Mm-hmm. And that kind of sense of the transcendental, it's there's a disagreement in Aquinas about that. Okay. Now, I, I, I'm not an expert in the relational epistemologies, but I sometimes wonder if in these relational uh, uh, modes that what they're trying to articulate is the intentional aspect from the side of the subject and, and the object and mm-hmm. keeping those two together. And, the, and, and because they're suspicious about the ability to keep the intentional side of the subject and the object together. They opt for a relational scheme. Um, that might not be fair to the relational philosophers, but for, for Lonergan, the, what you grasp is an intelligibility, and that intelligibility, if it's true, then there's an object. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't just think I stumble over a chair. Right, right. I, <laughs> if, I walk into a, if I walk into a dark room, you know, I, I stumble over something. Mm-hmm. Right? And, um, now, the, the empiricist for Lonergan will say, well, that, that's what's real, the already out there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, uh, for Lonergan, I, 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 there, there's three different aspects of objectivity and absolute objectivity is when I make a judgment. If I make a judgment, then it's true. It exists. And we do it all the time. But when we start to art- articulate it philosophically, it, 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 we get confused. Mm-hmm. It's, it's amazing how when we start to talk about knowing beauty or anything, how controversial it gets in the academy. Like if, if I, I use this example a lot. If I take a, a human brain uh, into class and I start describing the different spheres, the, the different hemispheres of the brain, the different modes and all that, mm-hmm. um, and, and I say, well, everybody has the same, basically has the same brain, there's, there's not going to be anything really controversial about that. In fact, if I said, you know, different groups of people have different kinds of brains, then I I could get into very problematic statements. Oh, certainly you could, yeah. (laughs) Right. Now, why is it when it gets to consciousness and knowing that if I say all human beings generally come to know in the same way, through questioning, averting to their experiencing, raising questions, apprehending intelligibility and understanding, making judgments. If I say that generally that's how all human beings come to know, then it gets very controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and move to consciousness, all of a sudden you, you can't make claims, normative claims about human beings. That's, that gap there indicates uh, the deep problems in contemporary philosophy. Mm-hmm. Well, and, I, and, you know, like I said, I mean, I think that that dual focus, I mean, I, I tend to think of it as dialectic, but that might not be a precise use of the term. 
between the subjective and the objective is precisely what your book contributes. I mean, because the temptation, if you're wanting to de-emphasize the turn to the subject, is to say that the beauty is entirely in the unity proportion and, you know, various properties of the object itself, irrespective of the subject. Uh, but you insist, I mean, with Lonergan's help, as I read it, uh, that both of those have to be present in order for what we call beauty really to be having an existence, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then in, in, in the nature, when I tried to approach the nature of beauty, I drew on Aquinas as mm-hmm. three conditions of beauty, which is clarity, uh, integrity, and uh, harmony or proportion. Mm-hmm. And uh, those are aesthetic categories, but also philosophical categories. That was my argument. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if if Aquinas is sort of you know one of the champions of theological aesthetics, I mean, one of the interesting passages in your book is when you engage with two theorists who are very suspicious or even hostile towards an objective beauty, and one of those, of course, is Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, your treatment of Nietzsche's literary and artistic theories. I mean, you credit him with seeing violence inherent in the structures of intellectual and artistic history, and you give him credit for that. But ultimately, what I see you doing is saying, you should have taken one more step, Fritz, and said, now you should condemn that. So, I mean, what about that violence? What about that imposition of will that we see in, you know, the genealogy of morals and beyond good and evil? What about those things contradicts the notion of the beautiful that we see in Thomas and other theorists of aesthetics? There seems to be a self-destructiveness in Nietzsche that a lot of people find attractive. I, I don't know if, if, if there's a kind of a romanticization of that. But I was drawing on the, the literary, French literary critic, René Girard, his reading of Nietzsche's aesthetics mm-hmm. as perpetuating violence. Mm-hmm. Um, although he got to the basic insights that uh, could have prevented that. He had this love-hate with Christianity. Or this, and so I point out that while, while he's detesting Christianity, he's also performatively identifying himself with a Christ-like figure mm-hmm. as he progresses. Sure, sure. And, um, you know, I, I quoted Grace Jansen early on that violence is ugly. Right? So um, if the transcendentals, if beauty and goodness and true, that, that violence is, is, is the lack of the transcendental good. Right? Any, any kind of, uh, uh, of violence is ugly as an aesthetic category. Mm-hmm. So there is a... Um, I, his... His dual aesthetics of, of uh, Dionysian, um, Dionysius and Apollo, I, I try to preserve those in terms of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So the Dionysian would be more of that aspect of aesthetics that, that's liberating. Like we were talking with uh, uh, previously about Schopenhauer, the, the liberation of the will. When you move into the aesthetic pattern of experience, you don't want to be limited by the uh, other kinds of differentiations or patterns of consciousness. Whereas the Apollonian is more that part of aesthetics that's form, 
that mm-hmm. the artist struggles to to put their insights into a certain form. They're trying to objectify, and by objectify, put into an, a, 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 a static object something they've experienced in this more purely experiential pattern of experience. Mm-hmm. And there's a tension between the two, but it doesn't have to be a destructive tension. And for for uh, for Nietzsche, the Dionysian was was destructive. And, uh, so I was trying to engage. I like to take the insights of these thinkers and preserve them, but at the same time, uh, uh, critique what what I think is is dangerous. And, and there really are a lot of people today that that romanticize Nietzsche, and there's nothing mm-hmm. romantic about self-destruction. Right. Well, I think or it's interesting, too, and, and I, I haven't read enough Girard. Uh, I'll just go ahead and admit that up front, but from what I have read, uh, that pairing of Nietzsche and Girard is fascinating because Girard insists that the unmasking and the revelation and the apocalypse of violence uh, has as its endpoint, if you will, as its eschaton, a sort of return to a primordial, you know, Christological love, whereas for Nietzsche, it is simply, you know, eternal recurrence. Uh, you just do the same thing over and over again, and, you know, yeah. you you do any given moment as if you would have to do it infinitely. Uh, and so I, you know, I think so, that those so two he, visions of temporality... Yeah. Are yeah. fascinating to see there, and I'm sorry I cut you off there. Go ahead. No, no, that's okay. I was just I, I always chuckle when I think about uh, his myth of eternal return because I, um, you know, he would have to lose his lover to Wagner over and over and over <laughs> and over. <laughs> yeah, poor guy, punishing himself. <laughs> Uh, yeah, for for Gerard and Gerard reappropriated his own Christianity when mm-hmm. he discovered these insights and when he realized that the there were unique insights going forward in the Bible that God is basically historically been saying no to violence and no to scapegoating. Right. And um, and so when he when Gerard reads. Uh, Nietzsche's aesthetics, he sees that this Dionysian, even though it parallels, the myth parallels that of Christ in many ways, he says, well, Dionysius uh, uh, continues to perpetuate the cycle of violence. Sure, sure. I mean, there's the difference between, you know, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, and go and seize Pentheus. And that's the million-dollar Right there. Mm-hmm. That's the million dollar difference. Yeah, and I and you know, like I said, I'm 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 still trying to wrap my head around this because like I said, your book was the first one who encouraged me to put Nietzsche and Gerard together and you know, I I realize you cited places where Gerard was directly writing about Nietzsche and I probably should go read that, but you know, like I said, I mean the this apocalyptic imagination of Gerard is, you know, something that uh, I've always regarded it as, you know, sort of the high point of Girard's theory. You know, the the mimetic violence I think is fine enough, but this yeah. idea that you know the course of history in a sort of Hegelian Marxist sense is not a perpetual, ongoing revolution, but rather it has some 
apocalyptic place that it's headed to, I think is really his innovation that resonates most with me. Yes, and there there is there's a course of history, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's more linear, so to speak, uh, sure. than it's cyclical, as in the terms in in in, in the sense of the uh, myth of the eternal return. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I think Gerard's work is very important. I now he's not a philosopher, a theologian. So some of my more recent engaging with Gerard has been to try to um, uh, bring some of that out. Like, um, uh, for example, the the Gerardians have argued, and James mm-hmm. Allison, one of his followers, has argued that envy is basically the primal sin. And uh, as a theologian, and coming from a Thomistic tradition, mm-hmm. I, I, I argued that, no, it, it, it's pride. Okay. Uh, uh, the, you know, the, the, the act in the Garden of Eden is fundamentally an act of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is envious in the sense that they're, they're wanting something that God has. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I so I qualified it, and I and I, I talked about a the distinction between a horizontal uh, mimetic appropriation, which pertains to envy, mm-hmm. and a vertical uh, a vertical mimetic appropriation, which is basically pride. Pride is trying to be more than your nature, more than what God has 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 created for a nature. Right, right. It's that overreach. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. interesting, and I'll admit my own conception of envy is more formed by Dante than by, you know, any philosophical treatise that I've read. But, you know, I, I see from Dante that envy has its character in really a post-lapsarian compounding of what pride originally did wrong. And it's even worse than pride because you don't exactly, you don't actually desire anything the other has you just rejoice when that person doesn't have it. And I mean, for me, I mean, and yeah, that's as I very interesting. say again now. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I, I'll have to have a look at that because I, I think that in some ways that could probably corroborate what I've been trying to raise about this. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there's a Catholic. Say that again now. Well, since you mentioned Dante and mm-hmm. his, his purgatorio, there's the seven, the seven, uh, uh, mountains or the, the seven aspects correlating with the seven deadly sins, mm-hmm. and uh, because the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner talked about out of the seven deadly sins that um, pride and envy were more severe because they were more oriented to spiritual things, mm, and okay. the other five were based in. Uh, biological and organic appetite. So, mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, gluttony is, is is eating too much or hoarding or however it goes. Mm-hmm. And then envy. You can envy something that's 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 non. I could envy status or uh, sure you know, pride. So there's. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, really important reflection that's gone on in this. And I think with Gerard that linking it with violence. 
mm-hmm. and this notion that there's different levels of violence, that it's not just physical violence. We've got this whole notion of passive aggression and, mm-hmm. and, and all of that. That uh, I think very important, and um, as and I think that kind of violence is ugly too, as, Jan, as Grace Jansen said. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to turn to another uh, thinker who is very suspicious of the aesthetic, namely Soren Kierkegaard. And, oh, yeah. Good. Yeah, I mean, uh, you brought to light you know, his readings of two uh, texts that have always fascinated me, namely Mozart's Don Giovanni and Goethe's Faust. Uh, and mm-hmm. I love that you put them side by side as two of drama's great seducers, but of two very different sorts. So tell right. our listeners a bit. Uh, so that, that so that we can save them from my lecturing on Faust and Mozart. Uh, what marks Faust as a different kind of seducer from Don Giovanni, and how does Kierkegaard's concept of the aesthetic life relate to those two? Sure. Yeah, that was actually um, gave me the idea for the book. What happened was. Um, when I first got the idea for the book, so I'll give a little bit of background. I was on a retreat at a at a, at a uh, Cistercian Abbey in in Oka, just north of Montreal, and I I just happened to pick up this essay by Balthazar called Revelation and the Beautiful, where he's just really uh, Balthazar could be very rhetorical and he just lays into Kierkegaard mm-hmm. and blames him in part the loss of beauty in the subject. And his thinking is, is that when Kierkegaard puts forth the notion of the aesthetic, the aesthetic, the ethical, and the religious sphere, he, for Balthazar, he separates them. Mm-hmm. And by separating them, he separates the transcendentals in terms of the subject. Now, I felt that Balthazar was being too hard on Kierkegaard. And I thought, well, if we look at these three spheres in terms of of dimensions of human consciousness, as Lonergan would be, we could could preserve Kierkegaard's insights, but at the same time critique them. So I do think that Kierkegaard has an explicit negative aesthetic, Mm -hmm. but he has an implicit, more positive aesthetic uh, that's not always clear when you get into the ethical and the religious. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, the aesthetic is negative because he he's basically responsible for that notion of the uh, of the you know the 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 unethical the the artist that just is is the seducer that the hedonistic um, uh, wayfarer. And and that really finds its roots in Kierkegaard's aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's so, you know that's Don Giovanni to a T. Exactly, and Don Giovanni. Although Don Giovanni's having a lot of fun, mm-hmm. right? And 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 this this is the seduction of the aesthetic for Kierkegaard. It, it, it he he's a seducer. He has many lovers. Mm-hmm. Now as this progresses, there's there's sort of three stages to this, as I've laid out in this chapter, drawing on the various Kierkegaard literature, that uh, Don Giovanni is sort of the first stage of hedonism, and then it gets more serious as it moves into 
Goethe's Faust, so that whereas um, so you can presume that Faust is a Don Giovanni who's gotten bored. Yeah. <laughs> and the boredom, uh, he, he wants more of a stake. So, so rather than seduce a lot of women at a superficial level, he seduces a woman to, to take it, basically to get her to surrender completely to him. Mm-hmm. And, and this is more serious uh, because, of course, Gretchen or, or Margaret, as, as Faust seduces, um, it's, it, it, it has more of an effect on her, um, uh, her personhood. Mm-hmm. Then the third stage is, is just even that doesn't satisfy the esteemed, and, and one just starts to, to wonder bored. Um, as, as the, 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 the story of the wandering Jew mm-hmm. uh, who, who's just condemned to wander the earth until Jesus comes again and, and, uh, and with no real fulfillment. And so it's, it's demonic in the sense of Kierkegaard that it's, it's heading for one's own destruction and the destruction that, one, one, that follows in, in the path of one's own self-destruction uh, and, until they opt for the ethical, they choose for the ethical, and then once they get to the ethical, well, um, marriage, vocation, friendship, all become stabilizing um, factors that prevent one one from just being a drifter, mm-hmm. a, a, a hedonistic drifter, that they get grounded in more of morals. A lot of those pertain to human laws, mm-hmm. and so Kierkegaard will reflect on on Abraham, and Abraham, for him, uh, is moving beyond human laws. God sometimes calls us to do things that might seem immoral or against human laws, but that's part of the leap of faith. Now, that's mm-hmm. Kierkegaard's approach to to Abraham, and and actually Gerard has quite a different approach to Abraham, but uh, at least those fears, and I, I wanted to retain those in terms mm-hmm. of the differentiations of consciousness. And so in Lonergan, there's this notion of moral conversion, for example. And moral conversion occurs um, when you start choosing value over satisfaction. So like if I have a diet, if I go on a diet, I go off my diet, like I can eat the Big Mac, right, for dinner every night if I wanted to, but I'm not really choosing the value of health. Mm-hmm. So in order to overcome that habit, I, I, I need what's called a, a moral conversion, where mm-hmm. I can go move from, from what just tastes good to something that's actually very good for me, that's choosing the value of health. And so I argued that what's, what Kierkegaard's really talking about from the movement to the aesthetic to the ethical mm-hmm. is that what Lonergan would call a moral conversion. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you lose the positive aesthetic. Um, but that doesn't always get carried over. And, and, and it has to be 
has to be drawn out of Kierkegaard, and that's what I was trying to emphasize. Mm-hmm. That was a, a very nuanced chapter, and but I, I've always loved Kierkegaard. In fact, I discovered Kierkegaard before I discovered Lonergan, and I, I was actually I was thinking of specializing in Kierkegaard. Oh, okay. And, uh, and then when I discovered Lonergan, I, I I found that suited me even more so. But I always wanted to come back to Kierkegaard mm-hmm. and address issue of, of the of the stages of or the aesthetic sphere, the ethical and the religious. Mm-hmm. In part because as I say I thought Balthazar was too harsh on him. <laughs> well one of the figures that uh made an appearance and I'll admit it surprised me a bit towards the end was uh Marcel Duchamp. Uh yeah. and one of the distinctions that you explore by, you know, sort of setting him up as the object of investigation is that between art and artifacts. Uh, right. And you insist that, you know, that distinction is important for an aesthetic theory, uh, more so now, post-Duchamp, than it was before he came into the scene. Tell our listeners a bit, I mean, you know, why that distinction has to be there now that Dada has happened. Well... If it's really following on my argument, if if beauty is part of being, if it's if it's a property of being, and you can make judgments of beauty, it also means that you can make judgments about what is art and what is not art. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not going to presume because my specialty is in art that I can do that, uh, but. It seemed to me that a lot of this found art, as it's called, and, and Duchamp's um, um, famous urinal, uh, which he put on display, shocked the art world at the time. Um, it was an artifact being used as a symbol for art, what he thought was happening in the art world, presumably. Mm-hmm. And... I think there's an assumption in art today that the artist is giving such a creative license that um, anything can be art. And and I'm just engaging that assumption and saying, I don't think so. Uh, And I'm drawing again on Lonergan's philosophy to say that what the artist is trying to do is express an insight that they've had in this experiential pattern of experience. They're trying to express it and bring the observer into that same experience. Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of Duchamp, I wouldn't I would say if in that context the urinal was functioning just as a urinal, then it would be an artifact. But in fact it was it was being used symbolically to get the art world to reflect and say, well what are we doing? Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I think it worked. But there are other points where, um, uh, and, and people can disagree with me on this, but for example, uh, Tracy Emman put, put her own bed on display one time, unkempt bed on display. And I, and I argued that that was an artifact mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a, a photograph by Cunningham of an unmade bed which captured the surplus. Uh, Lonergan takes that term over from Mercure, 
that that in an aesthetic encounter there's there's something more there's this plus mm-hmm. and and so the 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 unkempt bed in the photo has i mean presumably the artist captured the photo because they saw there was something going on there there was a play of light there was a play of form uh and as opposed to an artifact that might have uh, value for sociologists and archaeologists one day in the future so they can see what beds look like in the 20th century, 21st century. Mm-hmm. But as a work of art, I'm, I'm claiming that there has to be that um, sense of surplus of meaning. There has to be an insight. Uh, and this is to preserve the integrity of the artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, like, I'm I'm a philosopher and a theologian, and, and, and if anybody could be a philosopher and a theologian, uh, th- then it would it would degenerate, right? That there's okay. that there's there's a specific kind of intelligence. For Lonergan, he would put it this way: that an artist has a a specific kind of perception and intelligence that's important, that has an important societal role. And it's it's not about just you know splattering paint on a on a canvas. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's there's more to it. It has an important cultural function to get us to reflect on what we're doing. And in this sense, there might this is where beauty doesn't have to be an aesthetic category per se, but if it is effective art. Mm-hmm. It has communicated a profound experience or truth, and and in that sense, beauty is 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 present in the in the truth per se that's being pondered, that's being reflected upon. Mm-hmm. Well, as as we sort of set up these two categories, I mean, one of the other categories of phenomena that immediately occurred to me was something like political street theater, uh, which seems mm-hmm. to be partaking in the world in you know, a, a dramatic mode, certainly. Uh, but I, I wondered, I mean, within this um, schema that you're setting up here, I mean, would street theater fall into the, you know, the category of artifact or of art or of something else entirely? Uh, performative art, sure. I mean, I mean and, and what what are they trying to, com- it, it, you know, what are they trying to communicate in, in the street performance? Are they trying to get society to reflect on insights that they're trying to communicate? Mm-hmm. Um, this would be art from for for Lonergan. Um, if they're just you know playing, just for the sake of playing, it would be something else. So mm-hmm. certainly performative street arts. It's it's not the media per se that determines whether it's art. Mm-hmm. It's it's the success and skill at communicating meaning that leads, that, that brings the observer into participation and, and causes them to reflect. Um, you know, Ian Esco's Ask, play, Rhinoceros, where, where everybody turns into a rhinoceros, mm-hmm. is, a, is an attempt to get post-war society to reflect on the causes of fascism. Why did we participate in this? Why was it so easy for people to turn into rhinoceroses? Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, and so that's the function culturally that art can have a very significant point. So restoring beauty is a transcendental and the effect that that can have on a, on a philosophy of art can, can really raise the value and integrity of, of the art artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have insights. I'm working on a book right now with an artist, uh, a Christian iconographer, ah. called, called Image to Insight. And what we're arguing is that, now this is theological art because it's iconography, but what we're what I'm I'm demonstrating in this book with him is that these images, when you first encounter these images, you you may not be familiar with what they are, you may not pay much attention to them. But as these images are explained, you get these images can lead you to theological insights, and it's hope hope that these these icons will lead people to theological reflection. Mm-hmm. So even though religious art can be a little different from so-called secular art, and there can also be a uh, 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 mixture between the two as well. I mean, the, the, the line isn't gray, but or the line is gray. Oh, there we uh, go, there we go. <laughs> yeah, the line isn't black or white. But. There you go. Well, one of the things towards the end of your book that I think is one of your important contributions is the connection you make between the natural world and then human-made art, and your suggestion that aesthetics and ecology really have to become active partners in the face of the current ecological crisis. Tell our listeners a little bit about that connection, because I really think that is a fruitful avenue for some good th- thinking. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Balthazar's got this line at the beginning of the, his theological aesthetics where he says, you know, you eventually... You, when you lose one of the transcendentals, eventually you use being. You lose being. Mm-hmm. Now, the ecological crisis came after him, so that wasn't his concern. But it seemed to me that the loss of beauty would have an effect on our planet. But you know, I've got this. For example, I've got this chapter on uh, 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 architecture. Mm-hmm. Well, much of our architecture today is follows a principle form following function. So that's a very utilitarian philosophical assumption that's art. And, you know, it's expensive to build buildings. So a lot of our buildings are built uh, as inexpensively as possible. And so you focus on the function of the building. So we've got, like when in, in, in Toronto, when, when Ernest Hemingway was in Toronto, um, they referred to Toronto as the city of churches because you you come into the city and you see all these church steeples. Those were the most prominent buildings. Uh, now when you come into Toronto, well, actually 10 years ago when you come into Toronto, what would dominate the skyline would be the bank towers. There's five or six major banks in Toronto and each have a tower. And, and, it, and it looks like a bar graph, right? The towers are straight up. They're functional. They're not really beautiful. They're kind of neat, but they're not really uh, uh, beautiful buildings. They're functional buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I should say that certain times of the day, the way the sun shines on them, they can, they can reflect beauty. But um, in general, th- this principle dominates architecture today. Form follows function. Well, beauty 
is um, beautiful architecture can can really uh, affect people psychologically. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as I'm following this thought, um, oh, in terms of this, the same thing translates into our ecology where this utilitarianism and this practicality begins to dominate. And, and we think about the use of the land mm -hmm. and, 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 and forget about the aesthetics of the land or not consider that. And, and we're starting to feel the effects of that in many ways throughout the world. And, and the suggestion of climate change, the argument for it, which, I mean, I believe there's climate change. Not everybody does, but it, it seems that it, it's eminent. Well, go ahead uh, and proceed is. from the assumption that it is happening because that's a safe assumption with me. <laughs> yeah, and there's, <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's a lot of scientific evidence coming out. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I know in, in Canada we had one of the coldest <laughs> winters I remember last year now, whether that's a trend I, or, or not. But it just seems to be an increasing unpredictability to, to weather happening throughout mm -hmm. the world. Right. Um, but that would be that, that because we've our, our basic Western approach to the land has been what use can we make of this land instead of the beauty of it? And it makes a big difference. I just spent three weeks in Jakarta, and, and the most beautiful thing about Jakarta are the people. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's not a lot of green space. Whereas then when I was in Tokyo, <laughs> there is this wonderful aesthetic green space in, in, in the heart of Tokyo, and mm. it just makes for a very different experience. Oh, that is interesting. Um, oh. And so what's happened since I've written this book, especially when I got to the last chapter, Creating and Contemplating Beauty, mm -hmm. uh, is that I think today I deliberately take time out every day to try to, to, try to observe beauty. Uh, now, I'm talking about it aesthetically now, um, uh, uh, more than philosophically. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really try to get out there now and try to, make concerted efforts to, to appreciate beauty because I, I, I think it's, it's an important part of, uh, of, of life. Mm -hmm. Whereas we're getting into this digital culture where most people are looking down. Sure. I'm all, I've almost stopped people on the streets of Toronto before and said, hey, look up. <laughs> if they're looking at their PDAs or they're looking at their digital devices, which I do too. But mm -hmm. it's like, they're, they, you know, and in fact, I've got this beautiful park right out near where I live, and people will go and sit in the park, and they'll look at their, they'll look at their cell phones. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a trend that we're into. It's a new technology. But the point is, is I've, the, the process of writing this book, I think, convinced me that I have to, to make time to really contemplate the beauty. Uh, because if, if Genesis is correct in the sense, not that it necessarily happened the way that Genesis says, but but the, that the author, that, uh, uh, the author of the created order, God, mm -hmm. uh, has to be an artist. If sure. that's true, then God's an artist, the primordial mm -hmm. artist, and so that we should take, as a theologian, take time to contemplate. Yeah. 
I'm reminded when I was an undergrad in the mid to late 90s, uh, we had a, an ecological theologian come to campus and give a series of lectures. And, uh, you know, after one of the lectures, a friend of mine and I approached him and said, you know, what what can we do to get more into this? And we were hoping to hear him name some biologists or some theorists or something like that. And his answer, I still remember it to this day, was uh, when you go to class, walk slowly. Beautiful. <laughs> it really yeah. was. It really was. It stuck with me, too. And I, although I tend to have a long stride every once in a while, I remember that and I try to take a slow walk across campus every once in a while. Well, John, sure. up to this point, I've been setting the agenda for our conversation. Uh, as we wrap up here, what would you want our listeners to know about this book, about aesthetics, about Lonergan, about whatever else that we haven't talked about so far? The last couple minutes here are all yours. Well, I, I'm i just really grateful for your interest. I, I have to say that... Um, Arguing that beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder, I, I didn't, I, I, I wasn't expecting this book to be well received, uh, and it, it was not an easy book to write. Uh, uh, so I, I, I guess I, I should say I feel a lot of gratitude for your interest, um, but I think it's worth contemplating that um, one of the most serious issues today that we face is a loss of beauty. And that might not be something that comes to people's mind first and foremost. But I would hope to at least get people to start reflecting on that. And and that the good, the one, the true, and the beautiful are are one. And uh, and they're not separate. And and to get us thinking about this more deeply. And to try to to make more concerted efforts to reflect on beauty in every aspect of our lives. I don't know that I have much more to, to add than that. I try to make it as clear as possible because I want as many people to, to try to engage it, as engage the question as possible. All right. And it's a good topic to write on because nobody's, I, I mean, everybody likes beauty. I mean, everybody might different conceptions of beauty, but you know, it's 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 not as a divisive an issue as other issues can be. Certainly. So. Well, listeners, the book is called The Eclipse and Recovery of Beauty, a Lonergan Approach. Uh, it's from the University of Toronto Press. Uh, and this is Christian Humanist Profiles. I'm Nathan Gilmore, and I want to thank you, Dr. Dodosky, for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Nathan. And I was you. really... Oh, go I ahead. was really impressed with your engagement. I was really impressed. Thank, thank you, you very much. This is Christian Humanist Profiles. I thank you listeners for tuning in, and I hope that you'll visit us again.